Let's, um, we're in Matthew 13, but we're gonna start in Luke 4, I think. So uh, you might can turn there. Let me pray and get us going. Father God, we're just so thankful for your word and uh, the great truths we, we find here. And this particular passage is pretty insightful, not only about the compassion of Christ, but um, the heart condition of human beings. It's so easy to miss him for stupid reasons. And we just pray you'd give us grace to understand this morning. In his name we pray, amen. Well, one of the finest American films begins with the line, Maycomb was a tired old town. Even in 1932 when I first knew it. Anybody know what movie that's from? Yeah, my wife knows. To Kill a Mockingbird, right, yeah. <laughs> Which, by the way, they'll be showing in Lancaster in a few months. But um, do you know what, th- 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 that is such a great film. But um, this morning we're going to talk about Nazareth the hometown of Jesus. And you know what? Nazareth was a tired old town. (laughs) Jesus' hometown was very insignificant, a very insignificant spot on the map. When people talked about it, they never had anything good to say. You remember in John chapter one, when Philip met Jesus and he was all excited and he ran to get Nathaniel and he, find him, he finds him sitting under a fig tree getting some shade and Philip's all excited and he says, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel's like, he just hears one word out of that. He's not impressed at all. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? <laughs> That's what people thought when they heard the name Nazareth. And not to be discouraged, Philip said, Come and see, come and see. So he, he did get to meet Jesus. But Nazareth uh, sits in the hills about 12 miles southwest of the Sea of Galilee and the land is, it's good land, it's fertile, but most of the people there would be farmers and uh, maybe um, shepherds of some kind kept flocks. Very small. The whole village um, would cover about 10 acres and those were kind of spread out because these were like uh, farmsteads. But the population Uh, archaeologists estimate at the most would have been 400 people, maybe 200 people total. It's a small community. So unlike a thriving uh, town like Capernaum, um, Nazareth was really kind of one of those, what they call it, a small backwater. That's what what we call it in our culture. But there was uh, a lot more happening nearby. Nazareth is less than an hour's walk, so it's a walking commute of about 50 minutes to the town of Zephorus. And Zephorus was, was Herod Antipas decided to build his Galilean capital in Zephorus. So it was a huge place, um, thriving modern metropolis for then, you know. It was the capital of Galilee. And it's very likely that on their return from Egypt, when Mary and Joseph fled to Egypt, Joseph settled in Nazareth because there was work uh, a walk away every day uh, in Zephorus, which would have lasted for many years, building these great palaces and buildings for the, in a Greek style for these uh, uh, Roman-approved rulers there in Galilee. So um, that's, that's where Jesus grew up. And Jesus being a carpenter's son and Jesus' brothers would have all had that trade. Jesus probably grew up walking that 50 minutes to Zephorus and working there with his dad. That's very likely the, what, what happened as a, as a carpenter. He's not just a carpenter, not just a guy that does that. Uh, the Greek word there, tecton, is a, a specialist. I mean, they were highly skilled in what they did. So um, that was Jesus' family business, and he would have done that. So Nazareth, Nazareth though, itself was a, a peasant village, tiny, simple, unsophisticated, 
holding to the faith of Israel, at least as the rabbis taught it. And it may have been, it may have been kind of a nasty place. When, when uh, Nathaniel talks about it, uh, as can anything good come out of Nazareth, is he just meaning it's obscure, it's kind of out of the way? Because I don't think he'd say that just because a town was small. It might have had a reputation of not being too great of a community. And it's pretty interesting thinking of Jesus growing up in a, a backwater that's not pleasant or has kind of a bad rep. You know, when we first moved to Acton, um, Acton was going through one of those periods sometimes small towns go through where there's like open warfare between the community leaders. And it has, if you've been here a long time, you know exactly who I'm talking about. <laughs> but there was some very unpleasant stuff going on. And I can only imagine how, you know, there's these little towns. You can go to a little town and it might be like Mayberry, you know, kind of sweet and nice and Gomer Pyle runs the gas station, all that stuff. But, uh, but it also could be um, one of these places where you've got three or four families that run the whole town and hate each other. And there's places where churches are like that. There's like clan churches, you know, and things like that that go on. And it's just kind of nasty. And Nazareth could have been sort of like that. So Acton was actually like that. If, if you stayed away from the school board business, you could just live here and be at peace. But if you were involved at all in the community, it was pretty ugly. Larry, I see you acknowledging that. Yes, <laughs> he remembers well, yes. So, um, like I said, you don't really have to worry about it unless you were in, involved in the schools, but uh, it's way better now, way better now. So if you just moved here, you picked a good time. But uh, I suspect that Nazareth's reputation was not only because it was insignificant, but also because it wasn't a very nice community. So it's really interesting to think of Jesus and Joseph and Mary and his family, the Jesus brothers and sisters, growing up there in what could be kind of a unpleasant, uh, relationally unpleasant environment. Uh, because, you know, in most places where Jesus went, he was extremely popular. Now, not with the Pharisees and stuff, but the average people, they loved him. I mean, crowds would follow him. The, massive crowds. Anywhere he went, they'd be pouring in from everywhere to see him. And uh, maybe in a superficial way, maybe in a shallow way, looking more for miracles and just kind of a fun thing than the actual words he was saying. But he was embraced, he was followed, he was sought, and um, much loved over, you know, and many, many, but not in Nazareth. Not in Nazareth. And our story this morning is about Jesus returning to Nazareth his hometown, after an extensive preaching tour of Israel. But um, I want to first kind of get us where we are in Matthew. Remember what Matthew is doing in leading up to this story at the end of Matthew 13. And started in Matthew chapter 11. We said this whole section of Matthew's gospel is one theme, and it's consistent. And it's going to go all the way through chapter 15. It's that the progressive rejection of Jesus as the Messiah of Israel. So he's very, very popular and then things start turning sour, and Matthew just lists kind of in order all the different ways he was starting to be rejected. And the first one was probably the most shocking when John the Baptist started doubting if he was really the Messiah or not, and, and John got over that, I think, but um, that, that began chapter 11. And then after that, we have Jesus cursing, putting a curse upon the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, which is his new home. And... Um, Capernaum was where Jesus had moved his family. It was his headquarters. He spent a lot of time there. Most of his most famous miracles were done in Capernaum. But he says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred, had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, 
will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, they would have repented. It would have remained to this day. That's, that's pretty shocking language. And then in chapter um, 12 of Matthew, verse 14, the Pharisees literally want to destroy Jesus. They want to kill him, which I think we could interpret that as rejection. And then verse 24, they say he's satanic and that the devil works through him. That's where he gets his powers. In verse 45 of chapter 12, Jesus concludes that his people are at, quote, evil generation. And then at the end of chapter 12, his family comes. Remember his mother and his brothers? And they want to take him home because they think he may have lost his mind. And that's when he says in chapter 12, verse 48, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And it says, stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. And then you have the parables in chapter 13, which we've been looking at over the last couple months here. He starts speaking in parables, he says, to hide the truth from the unbelieving, from that evil generation. The parables explain the kingdom to the few who have ears to hear, who follow what he's saying with faith and respond to the good news of the kingdom. It teaches them, but to everybody else, it's hiding things from them. So there's a real change, a real shift going on in his ministry. So with this theme of rejection in mind, Matthew brings us the story of Jesus returning to his hometown, Nazareth, where, guess what? Guess what's going to happen? Well, he's going to get rejected again. Now, there's a very full account of Jesus visiting Nazareth early in his ministry. He's about halfway through here in Matthew 13. But early on in Luke chapter 4, that's why I had you turn to Luke chapter 4. Do you remember that story? Um, Jesus was invited to take his old place in the synagogue and read the scripture. And the tradition was uh, the guy that was invited to read the scripture that morning would read a text and then he would give a few appropriate thoughts regarding it, sort of a mini-sermon on it. And, they, and Jesus had done that uh, in his younger years when he lived there. But Jesus turns to Isaiah. Uh, this is in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. He turns to Isaiah and he reads this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. It's a wonderful scripture. And then he stops and it says in verse 20, he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. They sit down to preach in those days. What a great idea. Um, And he began to say to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What? So it's a messianic passage. I mean, preaching good news to the poor, proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are... This is messianic stuff, and he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And they knew exactly what he was talking about. And they seemed quite pleased to hear him. It's a a very shocking thing that he said, though, and actually tying the arrival of the kingdom of God to his presence with them. So here Isaiah spoke 700 years before, and he's saying, this is being fulfilled today and it says they were all speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips and they were saying is this not Joseph's son 
So they're rather impressed, but it began to dawn on them that Jesus wasn't anybody special. I mean, he was one of them, right? So what's all this about, they, they wonder. They don't see any Messiah in him. He's always just been a guy working with his dad at Zephora's and coming home at night and came to synagogue always and was, you know, obviously a fine young man, but goodness gracious. His family had settled there decades before. They knew him well. This is a small community, right? Everybody knew everybody in that town. And Jesus worked in a trade, just hiking on there, build, hiking out to Zephora's, working on building projects, likely, so what's all this about? They don't see the Messiah thing. And then he says, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me because he sees it, what they're thinking. Physician, heal yourself. And he's applying it in a way people used it proverbially more broadly. In other words, not just take care of yourself, but um, why don't you take care of your own? And they're applying it to themselves. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well, because what they had heard about Capernaum was incredible miracles from him. I mean, that, those stories get around. Incredible healings, deliverances, uh, just incredible stuff. So their thinking is, why do we hear all these stories about healings and miracles at Capernaum? You lived here much longer than you've lived there, and we know you. You're a carpenter's son. So Jesus had moved the family to Capernaum. That was recorded in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, where it said, When Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. And that was to fulfill Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, where it says the people that lived in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali will see a great light. And that's where the Messiah shows up. So that's where he started really his significant um, public ministry. And obviously, he'd reach way more people there than if he was preaching in, in Nazareth, a tiny little town. So they, they take umbrage, I love that word, that he did his great works there in Capernaum and never did a miracle in Nazareth all the years he had lived there. So there's kind of a tawdry jealousy thing going on here, a small-mindedness. You know the stories of when like, um, I don't know, the first person from a small town goes and gets, a, gets an education, becomes a doctor or a famous jurist or an engineer or something like that. And there's two possible responses the hometown has to that, right? One is, hometown boy makes good. I mean, they're, they're like excited for him. They're all, it's like what his achievements make the whole town look good and they're really happy for that. But then there's that other kind. There's the other kind of town. It's a very cold kind of reception for that person. Y'all think you're something special, huh? <laughs> Better than us? Why don't you do something for the town, for us, now that you've made it here? Why do I put a southern accent? I'm sorry if you're, if you're from the south, but backwater makes me think that way. It must, it must be uh, To Kill a Mockingbird just making me think that way. Makem was a tired old town. Anyway, um, so the Nazarenes, the Nazarenes take this second approach. Why didn't you use those powers here? What, what do you think we're not like deserving? Then notice what he says. This is Luke 4:24. Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. And this, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months and when a great famine came over the whole land and yet Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, outside Israel, to a woman who was a widow. 
And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. Remember that story. So what's his point there? Everybody needs God's grace. And at various times, God even favored Gentiles over the needs and the illnesses of his own covenant people. Gentiles got healed when many, many, many Jews had to suffer and deal with their infirmities without being healed. It's a very strong way of telling them, and us, if we're paying attention, that we are not better or more deserving than other people for this reason or that reason. That God's blessings come from his grace and they are dispensed according to his own sovereign purposes and for his own reasons. And there's no place for jealousy about God's operations in the world. It's not about the benefits of this world. Our job is to find out what he's doing and join in. That's our our mission, that's our life. Not, uh, hey, is is he giving me the same kind of benefits he gave? You can't think that way, it's really unhealthy. Well, a first century Jew does not like to hear that God favored a Gentile over them. Um, if, if, if you think about To Kill the Mockingbird, um, their prejudice against Gentiles was as intense as American common prejudices against African Americans would have been. They hated that. So, verse 28, all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. Specifically those things about the Gentiles. God favoring the Gentiles. Jesus is making a very definite point and they hate that point. They don't want to hear that. They got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which the city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. Hometown boy makes good. (laughs) But passing through their midst, he went on his way. So that was Jesus' first visit to his hometown after he started his ministry. And I think we can say with some confidence that it it did not go well. Now in Matthew 13, let's go there, verse 54, we have him coming back to Nazareth later. Could have been a good year or more later. He could have simply never set foot there again. That would have been my kind of take if I had been him like let's see they tried to throw me off a cliff I I think I'll kind of avoid Nazareth from now on but that was his hometown Jesus had a heart full of love he loved his own people and it had probably been a good year since his last visit and his fame had only increased so he took the time to climb the old familiar hill and visit and their initial reaction is fine They, they do welcome him home in fact they let him come and they let him speak in the synagogue Verse 54, he came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? It's kind of very similar to the same thing that happened earlier, a year before maybe. So they do see that he's remarkable. They hear his wisdom, Sophia. That's the real word that's used there, the Greek text. And they have heard about his great miracles, his works of power, the dunamis. But he's still the kid that grew up there, you know? Verse 55, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things, especially the Sophia and the Dunamis, the power and the wisdom? Where did he get that? 
That's a great question, and that, that question should have consumed them as seekers of truth, not angry, jealous, bitter, nasty people. Where did, he, where did he get the power to do miracles? Where did he get such deep understanding of scripture and human nature? And how did he develop a theology that was so unique and different from all the rabbis and all the teachers they'd ever heard of and so far removed from the scribes of the day? That is the question to be answered, but they weren't seeking an answer. Something else clouded their minds. They were piqued. They were resentful. They were jealous of those who were blessed by him in Capernaum. So verse 57 it says, and they took offense at him. So they're delighting in what he's saying in the sense that they're impressed, but they're being offended at the same time. They were scandalized. That's actually the word that's used in the, where we get our word scandal, it's from that Greek word, it's scandalized. They were upset, they were indignant, they were astonished at his wisdom and indignant that such a local boy could be so uppity and self-important, and they didn't listen to him. So their hearts were completely unmoved by the, what they declared themselves was wisdom. They only heard a wise man, but they didn't receive or consider the wisdom that he was sharing with them. That's an amazing thing. But that's human nature, to forsake wisdom. Look around you in the world today. I mean, would you say wisdom marks our culture? That if somebody came here, they'd say, America, that is a wise play. I mean, I, look, at, look at the news. Like, look at our government. It's, it's just a fount of wisdom pouring out of the seats of government. Uh, in the, do the news sources, media reflect wisdom? These are all educated journalists. Is wisdom what pours out of that? Our academic institutions, when you think of college campuses, do you think wisdom? Is that what you think? Most people do not sink, seek wisdom and most people do not embrace wisdom when it's offered to them, when it's right in front of them. And Jesus is literally the personification of wisdom and they don't much care for him. In this case, it's a case of who do you think you are? We know you. And they don't point to anything Jesus did that was wrong. They don't say, we know what a rotten kid you were. They don't say that. They just know him as a member of their community. But you know what? Their community, Nazarenes. He's one of us. Not a scholar. Didn't go to any schools, any, except a little local synagogue school where he learned to read, but he didn't, he didn't go to the best schools. He worked with his hands. He uh, never did a miracle here. And, and you know, just as a little side, a little side theological note here, all of this information we're being given about him from them, the, the very reaction to him here is a profound proof of the incarnation, how complete his humanity was, that they never recognized anything super about him at all, that he grew up there, they knew him well, uh, he, I'm sure they saw him as a good person, a kind person, a, a truth teller and all of that, but he didn't, he, God did not pretend to be human, he was a full human being, he was a man, he lived life like we do, with all of its routine and pain and hard work and sweat, Jesus lived that life for 30 years, he was a working man, he wasn't a guru, he was a working man, just one of us, that's what they're thinking, we know his folks, his brothers and sisters, we know all of them. So they don't deny that he's wise, they just don't see any basis for it. Where did he get that? Now, we know that Jesus wasn't just like any other child. 
but they didn't notice that. I mean, his parents noticed it when he was 12. You remember that? The only story we have about his childhood in the Bible that's accurate is uh, when he was in the temple in Luke chapter 2. It says, after three days, they found him in the temple. Remember, they're going home in a kind of a caravan, and I thought he was with you. I thought he was with you. You know, with that kind of thing. And, and then they run back to Jerusalem and try to find him, and he's there in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding, at his answers. So he was trading off with the big theologians of the day and kind of their equal at least as a child and, and they were all impressed with him and his insights into scripture so that's the kind of person he was as a kid he was an impressive child but the hometown folks they didn't see that They're, his own brothers didn't appreciate his particular qualities so even the Nazarenes didn't think much good could come from Nazareth either so I suppose we can try to get inside their heads and understand the psychology behind rejecting him instead of celebrating him but a lot of it has to do with something I kind of want to focus on here, and that's familiarity. And if you're a young person, I want you to really think about this. Because it's, well, let's look at verse 27. Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. So he's saying a prophet is not honored in his own hometown. That's a, that's a typical thing that happens. So and he's way more than a prophet, but... Even a prophet, a man that God speaks to and gives revelation to, somebody like you know, Elijah or Moses or Samuel or something, they're not recognized as prophets. They're not honored in their hometown. And it's this, part of it's this kind of weird jealousy, but it's a common reality that those who saw God's called spokesmen grow up, to see them grow up among them, the less likely they are to accept them and I think it has to do with familiarity. J.C. Ryle, the bishop, the Anglican bishop from the 19th century, he, he talked about this with regard to Jesus and Nazareth here. And we see it here. He says, he says this event in, in Nazareth, he says, is, quote, a melancholy page of human nature unfolded to our view. We are all apt to despise mercies if we are accustomed to them and have them cheap. Now he's writing in the 1800s and he says, the Bibles and religious books which are so plentiful in England, the means of grace of which we have so abundantly a supply, the preaching of the gospel which we hear every week, all, all are liable to be undervalued. It is mournfully true, he says, that in religion more than anything else, familiarity breeds contempt. Men forget that truth is truth, however old and hackneyed it may sound, and despise it because it is old. Alas, by doing so, they provoke God to take it away. And he's so right. And now we live in, whoa, the information age. We call it that, right? We have so many resources at our fingertips, more than Bishop Ryle could ever even imagine. But so many people, even in churches, even godly churches, don't avail themselves of all the resources that we have. It's kind of a spiritual dullness made problematic by this familiarity. Yeah, I know, it's the same old stuff. And yeah, the Bible, I, you know, I think I've heard all those stories like a dozen times at least, you know. Nothing fresh there. It can't be special because it's always around. That's kind of the feeling, you know. Ever feel like that? Ever go through a stage where you felt like that? 
It's not the opinion of godly people in every generation. I mean, God's word, if it feels that way to you, kind of like, eh, it's kind of old, it's kind of stale. You're the one that's not in a good place when that's true. So you just got to take some self-examination time. Don't be deceived. It's not the word of God's fault. Remember Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12? The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. God's word still does that because it's alive by the Holy Spirit when you confront it with faith. If you approach it in faith, it lives, and that's why it's not dull The Spirit makes it live as you come to it uh, and you let it examine you and convict you and comfort you and inspire you. It's always fresh because it's always there. There's always something in it for you for the current need of the time you live in. How many many of you experience, you know, I never noticed that in the Bible before, but like today I needed that, you know, because it's always fresh for the day that you need it. And there's things you need to be reminded of constantly that are in it because we all are weak, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. We all go through dry times with the word. That's human. But that's not the word's fault. That's our fault. So this attitude, this heart condition that that kind of whispers to us, it's so old. The familiarity thing... um, that says, I've been there, done that. It's a peculiar danger, a particular danger for, I think, if somebody raised in it. I didn't become a Christian until I was in college, so it's a different experience than if I'd been raised in an evangelical setting. I wasn't, so I was raised in a church, but had nothing to do with scripture. And there's a danger there, because if you're raised with the truth, and you're hearing it all the time before you really come to appreciate it or understand it, it can kind of seem like old stuff, you know? The greatest truth in the world doesn't feel special because I've heard it a million times and, and if I've never taken it to heart for myself, it's kind of mom and dad's thing, you know, that kind of thing. It's kind of like the way kids think about their parents' music, you know? Yeah, they love that music, it's, yeah, it's great, but it's not, it's not for now, you know, it's like I gotta look somewhere. It's kinda like that, yeah, the religion thing, it's like they're really into it, but I don't quite totally get it and I've heard it a million times and it just goes on and on. The, it, it's a mom and dad thing. And it makes sense that a child would feel that way because every human being is born a, a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve, right? So we all have this natural fallen nature and the, the danger is that some may never grow out of that sort of dull dull sense of familiarity with the gospel. The gospel and the beauty of Christ ever remains something they were exposed to as a child. They just, if they, if they have this dullness, they're gonna always see it that way and never find it for themselves because oh, I've been around it already. Fam- familiarity can make the best things, even the greatest things, the greatest things you could even imagine seem common and uninteresting. But it's, it's, it's unwise to see the world that way because what if, what if the greatest thing really was right in front of you when you were a child? Then don't get bored with it. G- grab onto it. You know, Dorothy was, was right. There's no place like home. I mean, sometimes that's true. And if I go searching for my heart's desire again, I won't look any further than my own backyard. Well, that would be true, like the pearl of great price. What if it was in your backyard? What if that's where the treasure was? 
So if you're raised with the gospel, you are an incredibly privileged person. It's in your own home, the greatest truth in the world, and a familial introduction to the greatest person in the world is in your own home. That is something God has incredibly blessed you with. So to think of it like, yeah, you know, it's my parents' thing, and I think, it's, it's too bad, especially if you just take that attitude and reject it on that basis of it. It's just so familiar, and I've heard all those stories a million times. That's so unwise, because some people really do have it from their youth. They, they have the greatest thing in the world right away. Many people don't. I didn't. But like Dorothy, some of us have to find it out for ourselves. She wouldn't have believed me if she had to find it for herself. That's, that's, that, that's true for some people. They've got to seek it out. But human nature has this rebel built into it, this rebel nature that's always sort of tugging at us, and we need God's grace to fight that and follow Christ. So to love Jesus and truly embrace what he did for lost sinners, every individual needs a new heart from the hand of God. And if that hasn't happened, then yeah, it's like... It's my parents' religion. It's nothing. It's so it's okay. It's nothing to get excited about. God came to earth personally, lived among us as one of us, and died a horrible death to reconcile our lost souls to God forever, to live with him forever. Nothing to get excited about. I mean, I've heard that a million times. How can you possibly have that reaction? People are not wise in spiritual matters by nature. Human beings are spiritually dull. And that dullness manifests itself in so many different ways. And one of the ways is to let familiarity diminish the glory of Jesus Christ and the gospel. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Don't let familiarity keep you from Jesus Christ. That would be a huge mistake. Just like these poor Nazarenes, they were such fools. Look at verse 58. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. So now we're getting even deeper. We're we're peeling back the layers of the human heart here and seeing the truth of it. And we can look for psychological explanations of the Nazarene's behavior toward Jesus and they might be helpful, but here's the simple truth. It comes down to unbelief. That was their problem. They simply didn't believe. Faith is the only way to connect with God through Christ and they didn't believe. They They didn't just not believe, they stubbornly didn't believe. Now, you know, Mark's gospel, Mark chapter six, has this exact same story in it, but Mark has a few extra details that are really helpful. Mark chapter six, verse five, he says, um, it says, he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he wondered at their unbelief. So Mark says something Matthew doesn't say. Matthew says Jesus did not do many miracles there. Mark says, and this is an amazing word, he could not do many miracles there. And you have to sit there and really think about that. Could not. What does that mean? Well, it could mean he couldn't do miracles there because a person's faith is essential for him to do a miracle. But that can't be right because Jesus in the Gospels frequently heals people without faith. I think John chapter 9, the blind man's probably the greatest example of that. That guy didn't even know who he was, let alone have faith. He just made him see a guy blind from birth. The other meaning of could not is that they simply, he couldn't do anything for them because they didn't apply themselves to him. In other words, they didn't come to him for that. They didn't ask. They didn't seek him out at all. They didn't seek anything from him. They were too indignant, too jealous, too messed over about his doing so much at Capernaum and never doing it here at home that they wouldn't stoop to seek his favor. They wouldn't stoop to find anything good from him. So I think that's what it means that he could not do it there. 
But Mark says he did lay his hands on a few sick people and healed them. So perhaps some people did. A few people did come to him. Or he went and sought them out if he knew that they were sick just out of his own mercy and grace. The other detail Mark adds is this. It's that Jesus was amazed at their unbelief. There's only a few places in the Gospels where it says Jesus was amazed. He wondered. And he wondered at their unbelief. There's no rational, reasonable basis for them rejecting him. And he was amazed. It's kind of hard to amaze Jesus because he reads people really well, but he was amazed. He wondered at their pettiness and their blindness. So unbelief, unbelief, that's the willful rejection of God's son. So make sure that's not you. If you struggle with unbelief, then just do everything possible to have faith and say, well, how can I make faith? Beg God to give you faith. That's the, way, that's the right thing to do. Open my eyes, give me faith, change me so that the familiar will become fresh and my life will have purpose and seek God. Seek him earnestly, seek him humbly. He won't turn you away. He's very gracious that way. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for if we have diminished your glory in our own hearts because of familiarity. And if we're here this morning with hearts of unbelief, help us. Give us faith. Open our eyes. We know the Spirit does that. Draws, drags people to Jesus. Open, do that for us if we're not there. And Lord, help us never to become so familiar with Scripture or the abundant resources we have to know it to become tired of it or let it slip away from us. Help us, we pray in Christ's name, amen.